0: Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of Don Richardson, missionary to what was the Netherlands, uh, Guinea or Papua New Guinea, uh, we call it today, who stumbled across a tribe there decades ago, uh, mid-1900s, stumbled across a tribe there that was engaged in a generation-long warfare. But it wasn't open warfare, even guerrilla warfare as we know it. It was a cannibalistic kind of warfare where the way one tribe would make war on another was through betrayal. You would befriend a person in the other tribe, the enemy tribe. You would cultivate a relationship with him for, for years and years and years before ultimately murdering him and cannibalizing him was, was what they did there. And it was, you know, it was one thing to murder someone and cannibalize them, but it was an entirely different thing. Uh, which was their goal to do it as an act of betrayal to cultivate a relationship for decades before doing it and in their culture the more uh complex the betrayal the more of the long game that you were playing the the, the more um uh, brave it was the more valorous it, it was you were you considered an ultimate warrior if you could betray someone after decades of doing this and that's the the tribe that don richardson stumbled across In the mid-1900s it was impossible to say how long they had been at this this game at this war because you know again it's a decade at a time the kind of betrayal that it was was taking place there but as richardson was ministering to them trying to bring them the gospel the two tribes got to the end of themselves they they no longer wanted to keep living in that kind of perpetual warfare where you didn't know who your friend was you didn't know who you could trust you Um, It was was causing them to wither on the vine, so to speak, and so the the tribes developed this ritual to end their war, where each tribe would take their most most recently born child, a baby from their, their tribe, and trade it with the other tribe. They would take the, the baby that had been most recently born to them, give it to the other tribe, and then take a baby from that other tribe back to your tribe. And then that your tribe would raise the your enemy tribe's baby as if it were your own. And as long as those two children were alive, there would be peace between the tribes. For the very practical reason that you wouldn't know for sure if you were betraying someone a decade from now, if it, if it could have been your from your own tribe and you didn't want to obviously cannibalize somebody from your own tribe and so that brought peace to the war it ended their conflict well richardson if you if you're familiar with the story used that uh that image he referred to it as the peace child he translated the phrase into english as the peace child to bring them the gospel to explain to them that people are at war with god a, a centuries a millennia long conflict and god has reached out to end the war by himself becoming the ultimate peace child by taking on human flesh coming to us as a peace offering to end our battle with him. I hope as we read 2 Corinthians 5, you have that story in the back of your mind. Verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The story here in 2 Corinthians 5 describes this division between mankind and God. And it paints in very clear pictures how God has bridged the gap. Mankind is at war with God. Ever since the first sin in the Garden of Eden, people have been exiled from God's presence. They used to walk with God and have fellowship with Him and have a personal relationship with Him in the Garden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out. They were put out, never able to work their way back. From that moment on, there was an enmity, a separation, a divide between God and man. God is perfectly holy, people are totally sinful and this division the separation of natures part of it is the creature creator distinction that we were made by god so we're not like him but more complex than that it's an actual moral distinction god is holy and his eyes are too pure to entertain evil in his presence on the other hand people delight in sin They delight in doing their own thing, going their own way, living for themselves, being their own boss, being in charge of their own lives. And so there is a great gulf fixed between us and God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, you see that God reaches into this world, reaches into this gulf, crosses this gulf to reconcile himself to mankind. In this powerful picture of reconciliation, there's three different actors here. There's three subjects or, or actors is the word I'm going to go with and I'll use that as our outline this morning. Three actors in the ministry of reconciliation. The first actor we see is God. God himself is the reconciler. God is the reconciler and that's what you come across in verse 18. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. The all these things refers to the great life change we've seen in the preceding verses Earlier, back in verse 14, it described how we had all died in Adam and now we're all alive in Christ, that we were separated from God because we were found to be in Adam. But by becoming in Christ, we are forgiven of our sins. The old things have passed away, that's our conversion, and behold, the new has come. That's our sanctification, our new spiritual life. And so what Paul means here in chapter 5, verse 18, is that these things, conversion, and sanctification new life all the way into glorification are all from God these are God's doing if anyone is in Christ they're a new creation this is because of God's work in your life if there's any hope for reconciliation the reconciliation has to be brought about by God that's the point God is the one who came to us God is the one who brought us to him God is the one who had outstretched arms not people People had closed arms and closed hearts. People were quite content being separated from God. Of course, we long for Eden, but Eden on our own terms. We long for the the joy of living in a sinless world, but we don't long for the rule of a sinless God. And that's the point. People are separated from God, and so if there's going to be any hope of reconciliation, it's not going to come from us. Can a leopard change his spots? Can a sinner change his ways? No. Understand that we're separated from God not simply based on our own sin or even simply based on Adam's sin, but we're separated from God because of our nature. Our nature is to be apart from Him. Our nature is to love the darkness and run from the light. That's what kind of people we are. And so we can have no fellowship with God. There is indeed a great gulf fixed. And yet God nevertheless saves people. He changes their hearts. He brings them to a saving relationship with himself. That's the image here in verse 18. These things, they're from God. They are God's doing. God is the initiator of salvation. He's the author of salvation. He's the architect of salvation. He's the designer. He's the one that's conceived this plan in his mind and is executing it in time. This is from God. And to say it negatively, understand it this way, people are never the initiators of salvation. Salvation never hinges upon a person. Salvation hinges upon God. People are never the linchpin in this salvation process. It's only God. People didn't design this, conceive this, or execute this. God designed it, conceived it, and executed it. It is God who is the reconciler. We are the reconciled, but it is God who is the one who takes The initiative. Now, reconciliation is a a word you're familiar with, but it helps to think about it a little bit. It's the concept of being brought across a bridge. There's a division between you and someone else. Reconciliation is the building of a bridge and the crossing on that bridge, the reinstituting communication. Many of you, I'm sure, are exiled or or, uh, alienated from family members, that you have a division in the family where there's you know division separation there you know they change their cell phone number and they don't let you know (laughs) your email gets bounced back you're unfriended on facebook if you can imagine your christmas card goes unreciprocated it goes returned but not reciprocated you know what i mean (laughs) you have no relationship there and to be reconciled is to restore that relationship. To be reconciled to that family member is to get their new phone number, to have communication with them again, to have the, the, your Christmas card reciprocated. That's what reconciliation is. Now, reconciliation is different than forgiveness. You're called to forgive everyone who sinned against you because you've been forgiven much through Christ Jesus. And so, of course, you forgive others. But forgiveness is not holding someone's sins against them. In other words, it's, it's glossing over their sins, acting as if their sin hadn't happened. That's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation is even more intense. It's at another level. Reconciliation isn't just simply overlooking their sins, but it's going on doing life together. It's continuing the interaction, continuing the relationship or restoring the relationship. So when people are reconciled, that's what it takes. It takes two people agreeing to overlook each other's sins and to do life together. You're not called to be reconciled to everybody in the world. That's just not possible. There's too many people in the world. (laughs) You're called to forgive those who have sinned against you but you can't possibly have a relationship with everyone around you but you are called to be reconciled to those in your your family or co-workers or friends or or neighbors whom you have a division with reconciliation looks like getting through that working through that and getting on with your life now in human reconciliation it's often achieved by just getting over the sin you know let me give you an example pretend you have let's say I don't know, three kids, daughters, let's call them, and uh, say there's a particular doll that is a much-in-demand doll, a much-in-demand toy, and there is conflict breaks out one day in the living room between the three girls and the previously aforementioned doll, and so you roll in as a dad, and you're going to sort through this, okay, where's the doll, whose doll is it, does it have a name on it, we we label our dolls in their foot, Uh, yes, it has a name on it, we know who it belongs to, it belongs to this girl, so give it to her, ah, father dearest. She actually said that I could play with it though. Oh really, this is getting easier, so she can play with it. Well, no, I told her that three days ago. Like, oh, okay. And then the third girl pipes up, yeah, which means it's my turn today. And, okay. <laughs> now, if you have children, you know the right solution is to grab the doll and throw it in the woods. And, uh, and say, we're done. You will have peace starting right now. There will be peace. Figure out how to work it out. Get on with your life. Let's go. In human terms, the key to reconciliation is usually along those lines. It's not found through sorting out the past sins. Once the conversation goes down that road, even between siblings, grown siblings, adults, I mean, it's funny when you talk about kids, but adults are the same way. When you try to go down the road of, yeah, but it was five years ago where you did the first sin against me. Yeah, but that's because seven years ago, well, you don't remember this, but back when you were a kid, I mean, come on. There is no peace down that road. The way that grown-ups reconcile and have peace with one another is by overlooking their sins. It cancels out. It's like fractions. You won't hold my sin against me. I won't hold yours. You know, We forgive each other's sin. It's fractions. They both annihilate each other. That's not how God reconciles with us. God does not reconcile with us by simply overlooking our sins and canceling them out because there's no sin on his side of the equation. People can reconcile that way because we've both sinned against each other. But not with God. God has never sinned against us. And so the path of reconciliation can never involve God simply saying, okay, you know what, We've been separated ever since that whole Adam and Eve thing. Big misunderstanding. Let's just meet in the middle. Let's just be reconciled in the middle of the bridge. Let's just meet and we'll get on with life. We'll start over. That would never work. And the reason it would never work is because if God were to tell you, I'll be reconciled with you today. I'll pretend your sins never happened. A brand new start right now. You would still be separated from him because you would go your own way again. You could start over a thousand times and it would just produce a thousand same sad tales of woe. Every new start would end with division and separation. Reconciliation is not possible between God and man like that. Instead, since we're not capable of initiating it and we're not even capable of meeting in the middle, instead it requires God coming all the way to us. God has to come to us to be reconciled because we don't love what God loves. We are not what we should be. We've seen the Lord's glory and we have walked away. This is not a fixable situation by us. There's a great gulf between us and God and we cannot make our way back. We cannot bridge the divide. There's no bridge And so God himself becomes the bridge. God decides to come to us. That's the joy behind this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, that God, this is from God, he's reconciling the world to himself, verse 18 says. In verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Verse 20, we're ambassadors for Christ. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is God who does this. Ephesians 2 While you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That God initiates us. He comes to us and he changes our heart. He changes our nature. And so he himself becomes the bridge between God and And man. God is the reconciler. The second actor we see here is Christ, who is the mediator. God is the reconciler. Christ is the mediator. The means by which God reconciles us to himself is himself, is Christ, is the Messiah. Notice verse 18, these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then verse 19, God was in Christ. Two different Greek words, dia meaning through and in in Greek meaning in in English. I I love that, makes Greek easier right there. God was through Christ and in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, God was the bridge and you're reconciled through the bridge. But God himself is the bridge. The bridge between God and man is Christ Jesus, God himself. Here he's called the Messiah or Christ it says. That, That word Christ, it's the word for Messiah. It means the sent one. This goes back to David, where God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah would come from his line. He would be the king over Israel. This goes back to Genesis 12, where God promises Abraham the Messiah would be from his seed, from his family. The Messiah would be Jewish. This goes back to the Garden of Eden, where God promises Eve that the Savior will be a seed of the woman, that the Savior will be sent through Eve, through Abraham, through David. That's the sending concept. In other words, this plan was not hatched in Galilee. This, hand was, this plan was not hatched in Bethlehem on Christmas morning. This plan predates the birth of Jesus. Even Jesus was the sent one, meaning that he was sent from God. This plan, I mean, get this, this plan predates Adam and Eve. And that's the great mystery in the the nature of the Savior is that he would be the seed of Eve but sent from the one who made Eve. He would be Eve's descendant but he would be, he would predate Eve. Well, how's that possible? She's the mother of all living. It's the old riddle how could the, that Jesus said, how could the Savior be David's son and yet also David's Lord? That's what's in this concept of the Messiah, that God reconciled the world through The Messiah through the sent one through himself that God himself would take on human flesh and that's the that's what's in these prepositions that God was in Christ do you see the declaration of the deity of Christ in that that God is in Christ so go back before Adam and Eve you have the trinity God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit these three persons one being they designed this plan of salvation this was their work this was their mind in action this was their plan their plan was to save mankind, to reconcile the world that they had not even made yet. But they had in their mind the plan to reconcile the world that they would make and would fall into sin to reconcile the world to themselves through the sent one. This, is, this mandates the, the Trinity, doesn't it? I mean, to have that kind of plan between persons requires a Trinity. If God were only one then there would be no way that god could send himself that's not what the word sent means you can't send yourself that's just called going is the word for that but god will send himself which requires at minimum two persons the son will be sent and the son will be god the person of god in human flesh Namely, God was in Christ, it says. And verse 18, God was through Christ reconciling himself to the world. This is why he's the ultimate peace child. He's sent from God, but he's in the form of the tribe to whom He sent. He comes as a person. He takes on human flesh so he can be received by us. That's what John means. In the beginning was the, the logos, the The word of God the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning he made the world and then he came to the world John 1 says he came to his own to be received by them but of course his own didn't receive him they betrayed him and ultimately killed him but through that even God's reconciling the world to himself this is the Trinitarian work of God to bring us to him as I mentioned earlier, when you have a sin against a person, you can, you can just gloss over it. You can forget about it. We have that, that concept. Notice this phrase in the middle of verse 19. God was not counting their trespasses against them. That's an accounting term. It's a ledger term. It's reconciling is the, the concept. There also is this mathematical term that if you owe me money, you have to reconcile the two accounts you have to pay the money and the payment cancels out the debt yet God determines not to count their trespasses against them not to debit their trespasses in other words imagine that you have a uh, a company that sends you a a bad bill like let's say Verizon for example sends you $200 charge that you shouldn't have been charged you know you shouldn't have been charged it's their mistake you call you make your case on the phone and they would say to you, Mr. Johnson, thank you for being a valued customer for 20 years, but there is, there's nothing we can do. It's impossible for us to do this. Was, there's no way we can take care of this charge. It's, just, it's not physically possible. The infrastructure of our computers, we cannot do it. But you decide to persevere, and you hold out on the phone, and after a few minutes, they see from your perspective, and they say, okay, thank you. Because you've been a faithful customer, as a one-time courtesy, I'll erase this charge. And you hear six keystrokes. And I think, you just told me it was impossible to do. And it took you six keystrokes. I could hear all six of them. That's not impossible. Come on. But what did the person do? They just highlighted the expense and deleted it. Gone. It's as if it never happened. It's erased. And I now no longer owe them money. This is hypothetical, but it's true. True. <laughs> Vindicated, I won the war with the Verizon. Is that how God forgives your sins? Does he just highlight it and delete? Pretend it didn't happen. Highlight, delete. Well, no, that's not that wouldn't be right. It's not right for a judge to do that. Any more than it'd be right for you to go to a bank and say, hey, My account needs money, oh, I'll take it from this account over there. Problem solved. See you later. I mean that would be nice, but it's not right. <laughs> probably illegal is that what god does for you does he just highlight your sin and delete it well no and that's kind of that's contained here in verse 19 that it was through christ god was not counting their trespasses against them meaning that god takes our trespasses and gives them to Christ. And that's said expressly in verse 14 and verse 15 earlier on where those who died in him will live in him, that our sins were crucified with Christ. It's not just dragging us in expense from one column to the other, but it's actually taking these sins and giving them to Christ. It's made very clear in the verse we'll look at next week. He made him to be no sin, uh, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that God took our sin and made it, on Jesus, placed it on Jesus, so that Jesus, in this sense, really actually had our sin. Our sin became his sin. And because he did not owe anything on his own, he could pay the debt in our place. He could suffer and die for our sin. This is his substitutionary death. Because he really did pay our sin, now God really cannot counted against us it's not overlooking it it's forgiving it by paying it through christ god has not charged it to our account because he charged it to the account of christ and the analogy of the would be a very different thing If the person on the phone said oh i understand this is bad so i out of my own money will pay your bill for you which is not what they did by the way but (laughs) You understand the difference there. That's closer to what Jesus did. He actually paid for our sin. Notice these two prepositions, these two bullet points, if you will, here. In Christ, through Christ. God was working in him and God was working through him. He is the bridge. He himself. When you understand this, you realize how silly it would be to say that there's Lots of ways to God, wouldn't there? All religions lead to God. How can that be if Christ is the bridge to God? All religions can't lead to God if there's only one bridge and the bridge is God himself. Don't picture God on one side of the gulf and there's lots of bridges and there's just a sign over this particular bridge that says bridge to heaven and this bridge is Jesus but there's other bridges to heaven too. That doesn't make any sense because the bridge is is God himself taking on flesh there's only one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus you say it this way the way to heaven is only as wide as the shoulders of Christ the path to heaven is only as wide as the shadow of Christ there's no way to heaven except by passing through Christ not just that he's the door although he is the door But he is the whole bridge. He's the means of reconciliation. His own life, his sinless life laid down for us. And he did this, by the way, before you were even born. This is the truth in Romans 5, verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While you were still opposed to God, before you were born, he reconciled you to himself through his son's death. How much more then? Paul says in Romans 5, verse 10, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? I mean, he's obviously going to save you. Do you think that Jesus would die for you and then not save you? That he would come to earth and take on your sin and die in your place on the cross and then forget to bring you across the bridge? (laughs) Like, what's missing? I came all the way here. Maybe you've done that. You've gone to the store for something. You go home empty-handed. I forgot what I was supposed to... Jesus didn't come to earth and die for your sins and return to heaven without you. He will obviously bring you with Him is the point. You've been reconciled. You're no longer separated from God through the death of Jesus Christ. That speaks of His incarnation. He did this. i me put a verse on your screen for you. Colossians 1.19 It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Him. That's an amazing part just on its own, but look at the next clause. Through Him to reconcile all things to himself the father reconciles us to himself through the fact that god dwells in bodily form in jesus christ what an image this doesn't speak of all things here doesn't mean it's not universalism it doesn't mean every human is reconciled to god of course not it's all those who are in christ He died for all, so they might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Those who are in Christ are reconciled to God because the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Well, you've seen the work of the Father, he's the reconciler. You've seen the work of the Son, he's the mediator. And now the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's described in an unexpected way. The Holy Spirit's work is described here through believers We are the ambassadors. If the Father or God is the reconciler, the Son is the mediator, believers are the ambassadors. And like I said, you would expect this to be a Trinitarian passage, and you would expect it to be the work of the Holy Spirit now, which Paul described at length in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But now he changes his metaphor here, and he's going right for you as a believer in Christ, whom the Holy Spirit dwells. You are the ambassador sent to the world. He says in verse 19 that he has committed. God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And that takes you in your mind back to Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can you call upon someone whom you haven't heard or who you don't believe? How can you believe in someone whom you haven't heard? How can you hear unless there's a preacher? That's why the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the words about Christ. So how can you hear the words about Christ unless there is a speaker, unless someone is talking to you? And God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, has given you as a believer in Christ that word of reconciliation. You are the one who's bringing the good news to the world. That's possible for someone to be saved without ever encountering another Christian, I suppose. I used to get the Gideon's newsletter and I remember a story in there about a, a homeless guy who a dog walked up to him in the street and dropped a fast food bag at his feet and the homeless guy opens the fast food bag and in it was a Gideon's New Testament. He reads it and gets saved. It's possible for God to save someone without them having any interaction with another believer. That's true. And, but you have to admit, those stories are definitely the exception, right? <laughs> Most of us come to faith in Christ by somebody else telling us the good news. That's how I came to faith. A friend of mine who was bold enough to open his mouth and tell me about Christ and and really beg me to be a Christian, plead with me to come to faith in Christ. That's how most people get saved. Paul says that's the word that's been given to you as believers in Christ. This whole work of reconciliation that God is the reconciler, that Christ is the bridge, you now are the one that is pointing people to the bridge. You're not the bridge But you're the pointer to the bridge does that make sense you're not the means by which people get saved they're not getting saved through you they're getting saved through christ but you're pointing them to the way in fact he calls it here this ministry of reconciliation in verse 18. if you go up he's given us the ministry of reconciliation that word ministry it's the word we often translate deacon or transliterate deacon translate serve servant it's the word for waiter he brings the food from the kitchen the waiter doesn't make the food and he doesn't eat the food i hope he brings the food that's what you are with the gospel you didn't design this message and you can't get somebody saved on their behalf you're just bringing it from the kitchen to the table you're serving people the gospel message that's what you have people will often ask me how do i serve in the church i love that question because it shows someone who loves the church i love it also because it's easy to answer i like those kind of questions two ways to serve in the church, two easy ways. Make friends with other people, build spiritual relationships with others in the church, and tell non-believers about Christ. Gather together to encourage one another in the faith. Scatter to do the work of evangelism. This is the ministry of reconciliation. It's been given to you to tell other people how to come to faith in Christ. You're a minister. In fact, it goes beyond minister here. In verse 20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You're more than a minister. You're more than just the one who has the word of reconciliation. You're an actual ambassador for Christ. The Romans had two kinds of territories in their, in their empire. One was a senatorial territory, which meant that it was on good terms with Rome, and they would send senators, and it would you know, an official part of the Roman Empire. But the other part was a, a, a territorial territory. Uh, uh, imperial part of the empire which was a place that was conquered and those provinces they would have ambassadors over them usually 10 ambassadors both men and women uh, older dignified noble sent by rome to be the ambassadors of goodwill because those people could always revolt and so the ambassadors were supposed to persuade them to not revolt against roman rule that was their job now the ambassador a good ambassador is somebody who'd be respected by the people he was sent to he wasn't working on their, you know, with their best interests. He was working with the best interests of the Roman Empire, the one who sent him. But he recognized the best interest of these people is what's good for Rome. So the ambassador comes and pleads with people to be reconciled to Rome. If there's a revolt, the ambassador would send for the Roman military and then would plead with the rebels to put down their weapons before the Roman military comes. And he would often say, if you keep revolting, if you keep up this insurrection, the Romans will come and they will crush you. They will kill you. They'll exile you. They'll send you off into slavery. So lay down your weapons and be reconciled to Rome. Now, this is the role the believer plays. We're sent into this world with God's best interest in our hearts. We're advancing God's agenda, not our own. We work for him. He's our king. He's our general. We're sent by him. And we're pleading with people, put down your revolt, put down your swords, stop rebelling against God because God is coming to judge you. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead. If he doesn't get here when you're alive, he'll judge you when you're dead, but he will judge you. And as a good ambassador, I'm warning you, you do not want to be found in revolt against him. You will lose. He, like the Roman empire, he has never lost to a rebel cause. (laughs) He will crush every revolt you want to be reconciled to him and in a sense the ambassadors knew that if they were rejected they don't take it personally they understand that if an ambassador is rejected by the rebels it's not because they lacked persuasion it was because the people are rebelling against rome and what do you expect and so the ambassadors were were known for making their appeals to people but then saying i'm going to step aside and let you work this out (laughs) you know you're revolting. Rome is coming with an army. You should put down your weapons and be reconciled. But if you don't, you'll lose. I'm going to step away and let you work this out. If you need me, I'll be in my office. <laughs> That's our role in the world. We come to people and we say, Be reconciled to God. Notice the language in the middle of verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Or in the middle of verse 20, therefore, we're making an appeal on behalf of God. That's what evangelism should look like. You're making an appeal. You're begging them, please come to faith in Christ. Please. In fact, strictly speaking, Paul's talking to believers, begging you to beg others. Do you follow that logic? If you're a believer in Christ, this should mark your life. Your life could be, should be consumed by pleading with other people to come to faith in Christ. Again, you're not the means of their salvation, you're not the bridge. But you're the ambassador sent to point people to the bridge. You're making the appeal. And it's really God who's appealing through Christ, through you. Notice how the funnel is getting smaller. God on the other side of the gulf makes the bridge. On the other side of the bridge, you remain. And you plead with people. Would you come to faith? Come to faith in Christ. The world is at war with God it's rebelling against God we are the ambassadors we understand the power of God and we understand compassion for the people to whom we're sent we know about the bridge between the two worlds we know about the great divide we know that Jesus died for our sins that he rose from the grave so that we who die in this life might rise again in the next we understand that we believe that but how will people in the world know that Unless there's an ambassador sent, they're not going to stumble across this bridge on their own. And remember why, by the way. It's not that they're just going to happen into this bridge. They're actively running away from the bridge. In their heart and their conscience, they know where the bridge is. They don't want anything to do with it. They're booking it as far away from po- as possible from that. And yet, God has sent ambassadors to tell people no, come back. Come back to the bridge. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the uh, actress Shirley Temple, a child. Hood actress. What you possibly don't know is that in the 1960s she uh, took on a second career. She started traveling to make appeals to raise money to fight illnesses and she was in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s when the communists overthrew uh, Czechoslovakia. In fact she was at this very posh hotel there uh, when she, communist tanks were rolling through the streets. She ran up on the roof of the hotel for her safety. She saw communists execute unarmed people in the street and that Scarred her that that messed up her her mind. She came back to the States and asked the president I think it was President Nixon if she could leave Hollywood forever and she wanted to serve her country as an ambassador now And she was first made an ambassador to Ghana and then she came back as a protocol officer, which means she oversaw uh, presidential inaugurations and that kind of thing, but at the end of her government career she got sent back to Czechoslovakia still under communist control as an ambassador uh, in God's providence, she was there when the communists overthrew it, and she was sent back decades later as their ambassador. And she was there as the ambassador when uh, the Czechs overthrew the communist government. And during those those days of strife, she took a massive American flag from the embassy. And uh, I saw a picture uh, of her doing this uh, on, on the Internet. She was wearing this very like prim and proper cocktail dress, a floral dress. And she walked through the streets of Prague with this massive American flag and she walked up on top of the the tallest hill there the viewpoint and raised this American flag over the city that was rebelling against their communist rule it was a very visible representation from the ambassador that if you overthrow communism there is another nation with open arms waiting for a relationship with you think of that story when you see yourself as an ambassador Are you the kind of ambassador that holds up in a bunker that hopes the war passes you by? Are you the kind of ambassador with the the boldness of a Shirley Temple who walks into the world with a big flag behind you raised for everybody to see, appealing to people? Be reconciled to God. Lord, we're grateful that you've given us this ministry of reconciliation. It's not a work that we can earn. It's not a work that we deserve. It's one that you've given us, and we don't take it for granted, Lord. It's a a ministry. It's a gift. I pray that you would use us this week as Christmas is around the corner, as we have breaks, many of us from work and from school, that you would use us to go into the world, making an appeal on behalf of you. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never given their life to you, I pray that you would open their hearts this morning. This morning would be the day that they give their their life to you. They would be reconciled to you through the teaching of your word, through the ministry of this church. They would hear and believe the gospel and you would change their hearts this morning, we beg. Lord, we're grateful for the joy it is to take your good news to the world. We pray that you would be with us as we do that this week. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.